Okay, what I'm going to read you tonight is Unpleasantness at Bloodley Court. <laughs> the poet who was spending the summer at the Angler's Rest had just begun to read us his new sonnet sequence when the door of the bar parlor opened and there enter entered a young man in gaiters. He came quickly in and ordered beer. In one hand he was carrying a double-barreled gun, in the other a posy of dead rabbits. These he dropped squashily to the floor, and the poet, stopping in mid-sentence, took one long, earnest look at the remains. Then, wincing painfully, he turned a light green and closed his eyes. It was not until the banging of the door announced the visitor's departure that he came to life again. Mr. Mulliner regarded him sympathetically over his hot scotch and lemon. You appear upset. A little, admitted the poet, a momentary malaise. It may be a purely personal prejudice, but I confess to preferring rabbits with rather more of their insides in them. <laughs> <coughs> Many sensitive souls in your line of business hold similar views, Mr. Mulliner assured him. My niece Charlotte did. It is my temperament, said the poet. I dislike all dead things, particularly when, as in the case of the above rabbits, they have so obviously, so, shall I say, blatantly made the great change. <coughs> Give me, he went on, the greenish tinge fading from his face, life and joy and beauty. Just what my niece, niece Charlotte used to say. Oddly enough, that thought forms the theme of the second sonnet in my sequence, which now that the young gentlemen with the portal morgue have left, left us, I will... My niece Charlotte, said Mr. Mulliner with quiet firmness, was one of those gentle, dreamy, wistful girls who take what I have sometimes felt to be a mean advantage of having an ample private income to write vignettes in verse for the artistic weeklies. Charlotte's vignettes in verse had a wide vogue among the editors of London's higher-browed higher but less prosperous periodicals. Directly, these frugal men realized that she was willing to supply unstinted vignettes gratis. For the mere pleasure of seeing herself in print, they were all over her. <laughs> the consequence was that before long, she had begun to move freely in the most refined literary circles. And one day, at a little luncheon at the Crushed Pansy, the, rest <laughs> the restaurant with a soul, she found herself seated next to a godlike young man, at the sight of whom something seemed to go off inside her like a spring. Uh, talking of springs, said the poet. <laughs> Cupid, proceeded Mr. Mulliner, has always found the family to which I belong, a ready mark for his bow. Our hearts are warm, our passions quick. It is not too much to say that my niece Charlotte was in love with this young man before she had finished spearing the first anchovy out of the hors d'oeuvres dish. He was intensely spiritual looking, <laughs> with a broad white forehead and eyes that seemed to Charlotte so much as not so much eyes as a couple of holes punched in the surface of a beautiful soul. He wrote, 
she learned pastels in prose. And his name, if she had caught it correctly at the moment of their introduction, was Aubrey, Aubrey Trefusis. <clears throat> Friendship ripens quickly at the crushed pansy. <laughs> the poulet roti au croissant had scarcely been distributed before the young man was telling Charlotte to his hopes, his fears, and the story of his boyhood. And she was amazed to find that he sprang not from a long line of artists, but from an ordinary conventional county family of the type that cares for nothing except hunting and shooting. You can readily imagine, he said, helping her to Brussels sprouts, how intensely such an environment jarred upon my unfolding spirit. My family are greatly respected in the neighborhood, but I personally have always looked upon them as a gang of blood-imbued, imbrued plug-uglies. <laughs> My views on kindness to animals are rigid. My impulse on encountering a rabbit is to offer it lettuce. <laughs> to my family, on the other hand, a, a rabbit seems incomplete without a deposit of small shot in it. <laughs> my father, I believe, has cut off more assorted birds in their prime than any other man in the Midlands. A whole morning was spoiled for me last week by the sight of the photograph of him, the tattler, looking rather severely at a dying duck. My elder brother, Reginald, spreads destruction in every branch of the animal kingdom. <clears throat> and my younger brother, Wilfred, is, I understand, working his way up to the larger fauna by killing sparrows with an air gun. Spiritually, one might just as well live in Chicago as Bloody Court. <clears throat> Bloody Court, cried Charlotte. The moment I was 21 and came into a modest but sufficient inheritance, I left the place and went to London to lead the life literary. The family, of course, were appalled. My Uncle Francis, I remember, tried to reason with me for hours. Uncle Francis, you see, used to be a big game hunter. They tell me he has shot more news, that's G-N-U-S, <laughs> than any other man who ever went to Africa. In fact, until recently, he virtually never stopped shooting news. <laughs> now I hear he has developed lumbago and is down at Bloodley, treating it with Riggs superfine emulsion and sun baths. But is Bloodley Court your home? That's right, Bloodley Court, Lesser Bloodley, near Gorsey on the, on the Owls, Bedfordshire. But Bloodley Court belongs to Sir Alexander Bassinger. My name is really at Bassinger. I adopted the, the pen name of Trefusis to spare the family's feelings. But how do you come to know of the place? I'm going down there next week for a visit. My mother was an old friend of Lady Bassinger. Aubrey was astonished, and being like all writers of pastels in prose, a neat phrase maker, he said, what a small world it is after all. <laughs> <clears throat> well, 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 he said. From what you tell me, said Charlotte, I'm afraid I shall not enjoy my visit. If there is one thing I loathe, that's anything connected with sport. Two minds with but a single thought, said Aubrey. Look here, I'll tell you what. I haven't been near Bloodley for years, but 
If you're going there, why, dash it, I'll come too. I, even though it means meeting my Uncle Francis. You will? I certainly will. I don't consider it safe that a girl of your exquisite refinement and sensibility should be dumped down at an abattoir like Bloodley Court without a kindred spirit to lend her moral stability. <laughs> what do you mean? I'll tell you. His voice was grave. That house exercises a spell. <laughs> a what? A spell. A ghastly spell that saps the strongest humanitarian principles. Who knows what effect it might have upon you should you go there without someone like me to stand by you and guide you in your hour of need. Oh, what nonsense. Well, all I can tell you is that once when I was a boy, a high official of our dumb brother's League of Mercy <laughs> arrived there latish on a Friday afternoon, and at 2.15 on the Saturday afternoon, he was the life and soul of an informal party, got up for the purpose of drawing one of the local badgers of an upturned barrel. Charlotte laughed merrily. <laughs> the spell will not affect me. Nor me, of course, said Aubrey, but all the same, I would prefer to buy, be by your side if you don't mind. Mind, Mr. Ba Mr. Bassinger, breathed Charlotte softly and was thrilled to see that the words and the look with which she accompanied them, this man for whom, for as I say, we milliners are, milliners are quick workers, she had already given her heart, quivered violently. <laughs> it seemed to her that in those soulful eyes of his, she had seen the love light. Bloodley Court, when Charlotte reached it some days later, proved to be a noble old pile of Tudor architecture, situated in rolling parkland and flanked by pleasant garlands, leading to a lake with tree fringed boat with a tree fringed boathouse. Inside, it was comfortably furnished and decorated throughout with groves of glass cases containing the goggle-eyed remnants of birds and beasts, assassinated at one time or another by Sir Andrew Alexander Bassinger and his son Reginald. From every wall there peered down with an air of mild reproach, selected portions of the news, moose, elks, zebus, <laughs> antelopes, giraffes, mountain goats, and wapiti, which had had the misfortune to meet Sir Connell, Colonel Sir Francis Pash, Pashley Drake before Lumbigo, Lumbago spoiled him <laughs> for the chase. The cemetery also included a few stuffed sparrows, which showed that little Wilfred was doing his bit. <laughs> the first two days of her visit, Charlotte passed mostly in the society of Colonel Pashley Drake, the uncle Francis to whom all Aubrey had alluded. He seemed to have taken a paternal fancy to her, and lively though she dodged down back stairs and passages, she usually found him breathing heavily at her side. He was a red-faced, almost circular man with eyes like prawns, <laughs> and he spoke to her feelingly of lumbagos, news, and Aubrey. <laughs> so, you're a friend of my young nephew, he said, snorting twice in a rather unpleasant manner. It was plain that he disapproved of the pastel artist. Shouldn't see too much of him if I were you. Not the sort of fellow I'd like any daughter of mine to get friendly with. <laughs> You're quite 
wrong, said our Charlotte warmly. You have only to gaze into Mr. Bessinger's eyes to see that his morals are above reproach. I never gaze into his eyes, replied <laughs> Colonel Pashley Drake. Don't lock his eyes. Wouldn't gaze into if you paid me. I maintain his whole outlook on life is morbid and unwholesome. I like a man to be a clean, strong, upstanding Englishman who can look his new in the face and put an ounce of lead in it. <laughs> Life, said Charlotte coldly, is not all news. You imply that there are also wapiti, moose, zebus, and mountain goats, said Sir Francis. Well, maybe you're right. All the same, I'd give the fellow a wide berth if I were you. So far from doing so, replied Charlotte proudly, I am about to go for a stroll with him by the lake at this very moment. And turning away with a petulant toss of her head, she moved off to meet Aubrey, who was hurrying towards her across the terrace. I'm so glad you came, Mr. Bassinger, she said to him, as they walked together in the direction of the lake. I was beginning to find your Uncle Francis a little uh, excessive. Aubrey nodded sympathetically. He had observed her in conversation with his relative, and his heart had gone out to her. Two minutes of my Uncle Francis, he said, is considered by the best judges a good medium dose for an adult. <laughs> so you find him trying, eh? I was wondering what impression my family had made on you. Charlotte was silent for a moment. How relative everything is in this world, she said pensively. When I met your father, I thought I had never seen anybody more completely loathsome. <laughs> then I was introduced to your brother Reginald, and I realized after all that your father might have been considerably worse. <laughs> and just as I was thinking that Reginald was the furthest point possible, Along came your Uncle Francis, and Reginald's quiet charm seemed to light up, <laughs> leap out at me like a beacon on a dark night. Tell me, she said, has no one ever thought of doing anything about your Uncle Francis? <laughs> Aubrey shook his head gently. It's pretty generally recognized now that he's beyond the reach of human science. The only thing to do seems to be to let him go on till eventually he runs down. <laughs> they sat together on a rustic bench overlooking the water. It was a lovely morning. The sun shone on little wavelets which the sighing breeze drove gently to the shore. A dreamy stillness had fallen on the, wor fallen on the world, broken only by the distant sound of Sir Alexander Bassinger murdering magpies. <laughs> of Reginald Bassiner encouraging dogs to eviscerate a rabbit, and of Wilfred busy among the sparrows, and of a monotonous droning sound from the upper terrace, which was Sir, Sir Colonel Sir Francis Pashley Drake telling Lady Bassiner what to do with a dead new. <laughs> Aubrey was the first to break the silence. How lovely the world is, Miss Mulliner. Yes, isn't it? How softly the breezes caresses yonder water. Yes, doesn't it? <laughs> How fragrant a scent of wild flowers it has. Yes, hasn't it? 
They were silent again. On such a day, said Aubrey, the mind seems to turn irresistibly to love. Love, said Charlotte, her heart beginning to flutter. Love, said Aubrey. Tell me, Miss Mulliner, have you ever thought of love? He took her hand. His, her head was bent, and with the toe of her dainty shoe, she toyed with a passing snail. <laughs> Life, Miss Mulliner, said Aubrey, is the Sahara through which we must all pass. We start at the Cairo of the Cradle, and we travel on to the, uh, well, well, we go traveling on. <laughs> yes, don't we, said Charlotte. Afar we see the distant goal. Yes, can't we, said Charlotte. And would fain reach it, yes, wouldn't we? But the way is rough and weary. We have to battle through the sandstorms of destiny, face with what courage we may the howling simoons of fate. And very unpleasant it all is, but sometimes in the Sahara of life, if we are fortunate, we come upon the oasis of love. That oasis, when I had all but lost hope, I reached at 1.15 on the afternoon of Tuesday, the 22nd of <laughs> last month. <clears throat> there, came a, there comes a time in the life of every man when he sees happiness beckoning to him and must grasp it. Miss Mulliner, I have something to ask you which I've been trying to ask ever since the day we two first met. Miss Mulliner, Charlotte, will you be my... Gosh, look at that whacking great rat. Changing the subject. Once in her childhood, a sportive playmate had secretly withdrawn the chair on which Charlotte Mulliner was preparing to seat herself. Years had passed, but the recollection of the incident remained green in her memory. In frosty weather, she could still feel the old wound. <laughs> and now, as Aubrey Bassinger suddenly behaved in this remarkable manner, she experienced the same sensation again. <laughs> it was as though something blunt and heavy had hit her on the head at the exact moment when she was slipping on a banana skin. She stared round-eyed at Aubrey. He had released her hand, sprung to his feet, and now armed with her parasol, was beating furiously in the lush grass at the waterside. And every little while his mouth would open, his head would go back, and uncouth sounds would proceed from his slavering jaws. Yorks, 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 said Aubrey. And again, tally-ho, hard forward, yorks, tally-ho. Presently, the fever seemed to pass. He straightened himself and came back to where she stood. It must have got a wave into a hole or something, he said, removing a head of perspiration, a bead of perspiration from his forehead with the ferrule of the parasol. The fact of the matter is it's silly to go out in the country without a good dog. If only I'd had a nice nippy terrier with me, I would have obtained some solid results. As it is, a fine rat, gone, <laughs> just like that. Oh, well, that's life, I suppose. <laughs> he paused. Now, let me see, oh, oh, where was I? <clears throat> and then it was, as though he awakened from a trance, 
His, his flushed face paled. Uh, 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 I say, he stammered, I'm afraid you must think me awfully rude. Pray do not mention it, said Carr Charlotte coldly. Oh, but you must, dashing off like that. Not at all. <laughs> what I was going to say when I was interrupted was, will you be my wife? <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I won't. <laughs> you won't? No, never. Charlotte's voice was tense with a scorn which she did not attempt to conceal. So this is what you were all the time, Mr. Passenger, a secret sportsman. <laughs> Aubrey quivered from head to foot. I'm not, I'm not. It was the hideous spell of this ghastly house that overcame me. Pa. <laughs> what did you say? I said, pa. <laughs> Why did you say pa? Because, said Charlotte, with flashing eyes, I do not believe you. Your story is thin and fishy. <laughs> but it's the truth. It was as if some hypnotic influence had gripped me, forcing me to act against all my higher inclinations. Can't you understand? Would you condemn me for a moment's passing weakness? Do you think, he cried passionately, that the real Aubrey Bassinger would raise a hand to touch a rat, save in the way of kindness? I love rats, I tell you, <laughs> love them. I used to keep them in a, as a boy, white ones with pink eyes. <laughs> Charlotte shook her head. Her face was cold and hard. <laughs> Goodbye, Mr. Bassinger. From this instant, we meet as strangers. She turned and was gone. And Aubrey Bassinger, covering his face with his hands, sank on the bench feeling like a sandbagged leper. <laughs> the mind of Charlotte Molliner in the days which followed the painful scene which I have just described was torn, as you may well imagine, with conflicting emotions. For a time, as was natural, anger predominated. But after a while, sadness overcame indignation. She mourned for her lost happiness. And yet, she asked herself, how else she could, she, could she have acted? She had worshipped Aubrey Bassinger. She had set him upon a pedestal, looked up to him as a great white soul. She had supposed him one who lived far above this world's coarseness and grime, on a rarefied plane of his own, thinking beautiful thoughts. Instead of which, it now appeared he went out of the place chasing rats with parasols. What could you have done but spurn him? That there lurked in the atmosphere of Bloodly Court a sinister influence that sapped the principles of the most humanitarian and sent them ravening to and fro, seeking for prey, she declined to believe. The theory was pure banana oil. <laughs> if such an influence was in operation at Bloodly, why had it not affected her? No. If Audrey Bassinger chased rats with parasols, it could only mean that he was one of nature's rat chasers. And to such a one cost what it might to refuse, she could never confide her heart. Few things are more embarrassing to a highly strung girl than to be for any length of time in the same house with a man whose love she has been compelled to decline. And Charlotte would have given much to be able to leave Bloodley Court but there was, it seemed, to be a garden party on the following Tuesday, and Lady Bassinger had urged her so strongly to stay on for it 
that departure was out of the question. To fill the Ludden moments, she immersed herself in her work. She had a long-standing commission to supply the Animal Lovers Gazette with a poem for its Christmas number. And to the task of this, she proceeded to devote herself. And gradually, the ecstasy of literary composition eased her pain. The days crept by. Old Sir Alan Alexander continued to maltreat bab magpies. Reginald and the local rabbits fought a never-ceasing battle, they striving to keep up the birth rate, he to reduce it. <laughs> Colonel Pashley Drake maundered on about news he had met, and Aubrey dragged himself about the house, looking licked to a splinter. Eventually, Tuesday came, and with it, the garden party. Lady Bassinger's annual garden party was one of the big events of the countryside. By four o'clock, all that was bravest and fairest for miles around had assembled on the big lawn. But Charlotte, though she had stayed on specially to be present, was not one of the gay throng. At about the time when the first strawberry was being dipped in its cream, she was up in her room, staring with bewildered eyes at a letter which had arrived by the second post. The Animal Lover's Gazette had turned her poem down. Yes, turned it down flat in spite of the fact that it had been commissioned and that she was not asking a penny for it. Accompanying the rejected manuscript was a curt note from the editor in which he said that he feared its tone might offend its readers. Charlotte was stunned. She was not accustomed to having her efforts rejected. This one, moreover, had seemed to, seemed to her so particularly good. A hard judge of her own work, she had said to herself as she licked the envelope that this time, if never before, she had delivered the goods. She unfolded the manuscript and reread it. It ran as follows. Good news, that's G-N-U-S, a vignette in verse by Charlotte Mulliner. When cares attack and life seems black, how sweet it is to pot a yuck. or puncture hares and grizzly bears and others I could mention. But in my animal who's who, no name stands higher than the new, and each new new that comes in view receives my prompt attention. <laughs> when Afric's sun is sinking low and shadows wander to and fro, and everywhere there's in the air a hush that's deep and solemn, then is the time good men and true with view hello pursue the new. <laughs> the safest spot to put your shot is through the spinal column. <laughs> to take the creature by surprise, we must adopt some rude disguise. Although deceit is never sweet and falsehoods don't attract us. So as with gun in hand you wait, remember to impersonate a tuft of grass, a mountain pass, a copter or a cactus, a brief suspense, and then at last the waiting's o'er, the vigil past, a careful aim, a spurt of flame, it's done, you've pulled the trigger. <laughs> and one more new, so fail, fair and frail, has handed in its dinner pail. <laughs> <clears throat> the females all are rather small, 
The males are somewhat bigger. Charlotte laid the manuscript down, frowning. She chafed at the imbecility of editors. Less than ever was she able to understand what anyone could find to cavil at. Tone likely to offend? What did the man mean about the tone being likely to offend? She had never heard such nonsense in her life. How could one possibly offend? It was unexceptionable. The whole poem breathed that clean, wholesome, healthy spirit of sport, which has made England what it is. <laughs> and the thing was not only lyrically perfect, but educational as well. It told the young reader, anxious to shoot news, but uncertain of the correct procedure, <laughs> exactly what he wanted to know. She bit her lip. Well, if this animal lover's bird didn't know a red-hot contribution when he saw one, he would jolly well find some, she would jolly well find somebody else who did. And quick, too, she. At this moment, something occurred to distract her thoughts. Down on the terrace below, little Wilfred, complete with air gun, had come into her line of vision. The boy was creeping along in a quiet, purposeful manner, obviously intent on the chase. And it suddenly came over Charlotte Mulliner, Mulliner in a wave that here she had been in this house all this time and never once had thought of borrowing the child's weapon and having a plug at something with it. <laughs> the sky was blue. The sun was shining. All nature seemed to call her to come out and kill things. <laughs> she left the room and ra quickly ran down the stairs. And what of Aubrey, meanwhile? Grief having slowed him up on his feet, he had been cornered by his mother and marched off to hand cucumber sandwiches at the garden party. After a brief spell of servitude, however, he had contrived to escape and was wandering on the terrace musing mournfully when he observed his brother Wilfred approaching. And at the same moment, Charlotte Mulliner emerged from the house and came hurrying in their direction. In a flash, Aubrey perceived that here was a situation which, shrewdly handled, could be turned greatly to his advantage. Affecting to be unaware of Charlotte's approach, he stopped his brother and eyed the young thug sternly. Wilfred, he said, where are you going with that gun? The boy appeared embarrassed, just shooting. Aubrey took the weapon from him and raised his voice slightly, slightly. Out of the corner of his eye, he had seen that Charlotte was now well within hearing. Shooting, eh, he said. Shooting, I see. And have you never been taught, wretched child, that you should be kind to the animals that crave your compassion? <laughs> Has no one ever told you that he prayeth best, who loveth best, all things both great and small? For shame, Wilfred, for shame. Charlotte had come up and was standing there, looking at them inquiringly. What's all this about? she asked. Aubrey started dramatically. Oh, Miss Mulliner, I was not aware that you were there. All this, oh, nothing. I found this lad here on his way to shoot sparrows with his air gun, and I'm taking the thing from him. It may seem to you a high-handed action on my part. You may consider me hypersensitive. You may ask, why all this fuss about a few birds? But that is Aubrey Bassinger. <laughs> Aubrey Bassinger will not lightly uh, allow even the merest sparrow to be placed in jeopardy. Tut, Wilfred, he said, tut. 
Cannot you see how wrong it is to shoot the poor sparrows? But I wasn't going to shoot sparrows, said the boy. I was going to shoot Uncle Francis while he was having a sunbath. <clears throat> it is also wrong, said Aubrey after a slight hesitation, <laughs> to shoot Uncle Francis while he's having a sunbath. Charlotte Molliner uttered, uttered an impatient exclamation, and Aubrey, looking at her, saw that her eyes were glittering with a strange light. She breathed quickly through her delicately chiseled nose. She seemed feverish, and a medical man would have been concerned about her blood pressure. <laughs> why, she demanded vehemently, why is it wrong? Why shouldn't he shoot his Uncle Francis while he is having his sunbath? <laughs> Aubrey stood for a moment, pondering. Her razor-like feminine intelligence had cut cleanly to the core of the matter. <laughs> After all, now that you put it like that, why not? <laughs> Think how it would tickle him up a bit. <laughs> True, said Aubrey, nodding. True. And his Uncle Francis is precisely the sort of man who ought to have been shot at with air guns incessantly for the last 30 years. The moment I met him, I said to myself, that man ought to be shot at with air guns. <laughs> Aubrey nodded again. Her girlish enthusiasm had begun to infect him. There is uh, much in what you say, he admitted. Where is he? asked Charlotte, turning to the boy. On the roof of the boathouse. Charlotte's face clouded. Hmm, she said, that's awkward. How is one to get at him? I remember Uncle Francis telling me once, said Aubrey, that when you start went shooting tigers, you climbed a tree. There are plenty of trees by the boathouse. Admirable! <laughs> For an instant there came to, Aubrey, to, to disturb Aubrey's hearty joy in the chase, a brief faint flicker of prudence. But I say, do you really think, ought we? Charlotte's eyes flashed scornfully. Infirm of purpose, she said. Give me that air gun. <laughs> I was only thinking, well, I suppose you know he held practically nothing on. Charlotte Mulner laughed lightly. He can't intimidate me. <laughs> Come, let's be going. Up on the roof of the boathouse, the beneficent ultra rays of the afternoon sun pouring down on his globular surface. <laughs> Colonel Sir Francis Bashley Drake lay in that pleasant half-waking, half-dreaming state that accompanies this particular form of lumbago treatment. His mind flitted lightly from one soothing subject to another. He thought of elks he had shot in Canada, of mouflons he had shot in the Grecian archipelago, of giraffes he had shot in Nigeria. He was just on the point of thinking of a hypotamus which he had shot in Egypt when the train of his meditations was interrupted by a soft popping sound not far away. He smiled affectionately. So little Ilf Wilford was out with his air gun, eh? A thrill of quiet pride passed through past Colonel Pashley Drake. He had trained the lad well, he felt, with a garden park party in progress, with all the opportunities it offered for quiet gorging. How many boys of Wilford's age would have neglected their shooting to hang around the tea table and stuff themselves with cakes? But this fine lad, Ping. There it was again. The boy must be somewhere close at hand. 
He wished he could be at his side, giving him kindly advice. Wilfred, he felt, was a young fellow after his own heart. What destruction he would spread among the really worthwhile animals when he grew up and put aside childish things and exchanged his air gun for a Winchester repeater. <laughs> Sir Colonel Sir Francis Pashley Drake started. Two inches from where he lay, a splinter of wood had sprung from the roadhouse roof. He sat up feeling a little less affectionate. Wilfred? There was no reply. Be careful, Wilfred, my boy. You nearly... A sharp, agonizing twinge caused him to break off abruptly. He sprang to his feet and began to address the surrounding landscape passionately in one of the lesser-known dialects of the Congo Basin. <laughs> <clears throat> he no longer thought of it, Wilfred with quiet pride. Few things so speedily modify an uncle's love as a nephew's uh, air gun in the fleshy part of his air bullet, air gun bullet in the fleshy part of the leg. <laughs> Sir Fra Francis Pashley Drake's plans for this boy future, boy's future had undergone in one brief instant a complete change. He no longer desired to stand beside him through his formative years, teaching him the secrets of shikari. All he wanted to do was get close enough to him to teach him with the flat of his right hand to be a bit more careful where he pointed his gun. <clears throat> he was expressing a synopsis of these views in a mixture of Urdu and Cape Dutch <laughs> when the words were swept from his lips by the sight of a woman's face peering from the branches of a nearby tree. Colonel Pashley Drake reeled where he stood. Like so many outdoor men, he was the soul of modesty. Once in Bechuana land, he had left a na native witch dance in a marked manner <clears throat> because he considered the chief's third supplementary wife insufficiently clad. <clears throat> An acute consciousness of the sketchiness of his costume overcame him. He blushed brightly. My dear young lady, he stammered. He had got this far when he perceived that the young woman was aiming at him with something <laughs> that looked remarkably like an air gun. Her tongue protruding th thoughtfully from the corner of her mouth. She had closed one eye and with the other was squinting tensely along the barrel. Colonel Sir Francis Pashley Drake did not linger. In all England there was probably no man more enthusiastic about shooting. But the fascination of shooting as a sport depends almost wholly on whether you're the, at the right or the wrong end of the gun. <laughs> With an ability, agility which no new, unless in the very pink of condition, could have surpassed, he sprang to the side of the roof and leaped off. There was a clump of reeds not far from the boathouse. He galloped across the turf and, and dived into them. Charlotte descended from her tree. Her expression was perpetulant. Girls nowadays are spoiled and only too readily to become peevish when balked of their pleasures. I had no idea he was so nippy, she said. A quick mover, agreed Aubrey. I imagine he got that way from dodging rhinoceroses. Why can't they make these silly guns with two barrels? A single barrel doesn't give a, give a girl a chance. <laughs> Nestling among the reeds. Colonel Sir Prashley Drake, in spite of the indignation natural to a man in his position, 
could not help feeling a certain complacency. The old woodcraft of the hunter had stood him, he felt, in good stead. Not many men, he told himself, would have had the initiati initiative and swift intelligence to act so promptly in the face of peril. He was aware of voices close by. What do we do now, he heard Charlotte Molliner say. We must think, said the voice of his nephew, Aubrey. He's in there somewhere. <laughs> yes. I hate to see a fine head like that get away, said Charlotte. <clears throat> and her voice was still querulous, especially after I winged him. The very next poem I write is going to be an appeal to air gun manufacturers to use their intelligence if they, intelligence if they have any and turn out a line with two barrels. I shall write a pastel in prose on the same subject, agreed Aubrey. Well, what shall we do? There was a short silence. An insect of unknown species crept up Pashley Drake and bit him in the small of the back. I'll tell you what, said Aubrey. I remember Uncle Francis mentioning to me once that when wounded zebus take cover by the reaches of the lower Zambezi, the sportsman dispatches a native assistant to set fire to... <laughs> Sir pa Francis Pashley Drake emitted a hollow groan. It was drowned by Charlotte's cry of delight. Why, of course, how clever you are, Mr. Bassinger. Oh, no, said Audrey modestly. modestly. Have you matches? I have a cigarette lighter. <laughs> then would it be bothering you too much to go and set a light to those reeds? About there would be a good place. And I'll wait here with the gun. <laughs> I should be charmed. I hate to trouble you. Oh, no trouble, I assure you, said Aubrey. A pleasure. Three minutes later, the revelers on the lawn were interested to observe a sight rare at the better class of English garden party. <laughs> Out of a clump of laurel bushes that bordered the smoothly mown turf, there came, a char came charging a white, pink gentleman of middle age who hopped from side to side as he ran. He was wearing a loincloth and seemed in a hurry. They had just time to recognize this in this newcomer their hostess's brother, Colonel Sir Francis Pashley Drake. When he snatched a cloth from the nearest table, draped it round him, and with a quick leap took refuge behind the portly form of the Bishop of Stortford, <laughs> who was talking to the lo local master of hounds about the difficulty he had in keeping his vicars off the incense. <laughs> Charlotte and Aubrey had paused in the shelter of the laurels. Aubrey, peering through his this zeriba, clicked his tongue regretfully. He's taken cover again, he said. I'm afraid we shall find it difficult to dig him out of there. He's gone to earth behind a bishop. <laughs> Receiving no reply, he turned. Miss Molliner, he exclaimed. Charlotte, what's the matter? A strange change had come over the girl's beautiful face since he had last gazed at it. The fire had died out of those lovely eyes, leaving them looking like those of a newly awakened somnambulist. She was pale, and the tip of her nose quivered. Where am I? she murmured. Bloodly Manor, Lesser Bloodly, Goresby on Owls, Bedford, Telephone 28, Goresby, said Audrey quickly. Have I been dreaming, or did I really? 
Yes, yes, she moaned, shuddering violently. It all comes back to me. I shot Sir Francis with the air gun. You certainly did, said Aubrey. <laughs> and would, gone, would have gone on to comment with warm approbation on the skill she had shown, a skill which, in an untrained novice, had struck him as really remarkable. But he checked himself. Surely, he said, you are not letting the fact disturb you. It is the sort of thing that might have happened to anyone. She interrupted him. How right you were, Mr. Bassinger, to warn me against the spell of Bloodley, and how wrong I was to blame you for borrowing my parasol to chase a rat. Can you ever forgive me? Charlotte, Aubrey, Charlotte. <laughs> Hush, she said, said, listen. On the lawn, Sir Francis Pashley Drake was telling his story to an enthralled audience. <laughs> the, sympathy of the, the sympathy of the meeting, it was only too plain, was entirely with him. This shooting of a sitting sunbather had stirred the feelings of his hearers deeply. Indignant ex in exclamations came faintly to the ears of the young couple in the laurel. Most irregular, <coughs> not done, scarcely cricket. And then from Alexander Bassinger Stern, I shall require a full explanation. Charlotte turned to Aubrey. What shall we do? Well, said Aubrey, reflecting, I don't think we had better just go on and join the party and behave as if nothing had happened. The atmosphere doesn't seem quite right. What I would propose is that we take a short cut through the fields to the station, hook up with the 550 Express at Goresby, Go to London, have an old, have a bit of dinner, get married, and yes, yes, cried Charlotte, take me away from this awful house. To the ends of the world, said Aubrey fervently. He paused. He said suddenly, look here. If you move over to where I'm standing, you get the old boy plums bang against the skyline. <laughs> you wouldn't care for just one last, no, no. Merely a suggestion, said Aubrey. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, perhaps you're right. Then let's be shifting. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs>